Okay. A poem by E.E. E. Cummings. I thank you, God, for most this amazing day, for the leaping greenly spirits of trees and a blue true dream of sky, and for everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is yes. I, who have died, am alive again today, and this is the sun's birthday. This is the birthday of life and of love and wings and of the gay, great, happening, illimitably earth. How should tasting, touching, hearing, seeing, breathing, any, lifted from the know of all nothing, human, merely being, doubt, unimaginable you. Now the ears of my ears awake, and now the eyes of my eyes are opened. And all the people said, amen. So um, again, thank you for being flexible about our little switcheroo this week. Um, I feel like I could hear some of your internal voices when we introduced the, po the Poetic Imagination series. Um, like, like saying, well, that isn't theology, that's fluff. Was that you? Who, who was it? I heard, some, I heard it from somebody. I'm winking at you. Um, so if that was you, I would say you would be wrong. <laughs> You're wrong. Because beauty and creative expression are core to God's character and to our spirituality and to our experience of both the divine and the ordinary. Our creativity as human being is part of our imago dei. And the poets teach us how to observe, and they blur the lines between the sacred and the profane, and they give language to the human condition and expression to our depths. And so we hope that you found that to be true in this, in this series. So just to recap, we talked in week one, Aurelia spoke about reading the Bible as a poem and approaching it in an open-hearted, non-judgmental way. And then in week two, Matt spoke so eloquently about the poetry of resurrection in See, Breathe, Live, using the prophetic narrative of Ezekiel as a poetic starting point. If you didn't get it, it was so beautiful. Y'all gotta go back and listen. And then in the third week of the series, Aurelia gave us a taste of what it might look like for us to live within the rhythm of poetry and some practical tools for incorporating poetry and specifically sacred pause into our own spiritual practice. And we've done all this because we want us, our people, to have plenty of places to lean into for spiritual growth and nourishment and to be able to experience the divine in, the ordinary, in our ordinary lives. Because God is calling to us. God is calling us in to this divine flow and this beautiful relationship that's full of life and full of beauty and connection. And we'll only become drawn into that flow if we are paying attention. And we think this is good practice for Lent. In the rhythm of Lent, we're asked to look at ourselves and do some evaluating. But here's a little bit of a mystery. I find myself a bit challenged this morning because I'm really wanting to convey to you in this sermon in words, I can't really use words to convey. It's kind of a conundrum. And, and, 
it's also, it's kind of weird, but it's also just part of talking about God. When we try to talk about God, it's just, it's hard to do. God is hard to pin down with words. And it's also the limitation of preaching. So I can, I can sit here all day and use words and poetry to point at God, but in the end, you all have to experience God for yourself. So here's what I invite you to do. Go, go inside your mind for a second, and right next to your thinker dial, there's a dial next to it that's called your feeler dial, and just turn up, just judge up the volume on it so that you can feel a little bit more loudly, because I wonder if you might be able to feel what I'm trying to, to convey to you this morning more than you might be able to hear it with words. So... If you're still feeling a bit unsure of why we've been talking about poetry, it may be helpful if I remind you that our own sacred text is chock full of poetry. In fact, several entire biblical books are or are mostly poetry. But before I start to talk to you about poetry and scripture, I want to talk to you just a little bit about poetry and me. When I was growing up, I didn't really know what I wanted to be, but I knew that I wanted it to involve books. So maybe I'd be an editor or a writer or a professor, and I just knew that there was something about the power of story and of narrative that I intuitively understood and believed in. And that there, was this, there was something about the power of words that I believed in. And, and I actually have an undergraduate degree in literature, just to prove my point, that this was my intent well up until I became an adult. And at one point, I thought I would even go on with my studies in the field of, of, in the field of literature, and I was all set to go to grad school. But in the end, I didn't feel peaceful about that path, so I didn't go through with it. Um, I even applied to some creative, write, some creative writing programs, even though I didn't get into any of them. Um, And then for a time, I felt certain that I was completely done with writing and I was completely done with poetry, even though I occasionally um, wrote some song lyrics and I always kept a journal. But, you know, it's really hard to to make a living writing. And to do it, you have to be really competitive and really dedicated. And I just didn't really have those things going for me. So I mostly gave writing up. And in the process... I stifled a huge part of myself that was creative and lyrical and adventurous with words. Until, in 2010, I met my friend, Liturgy. I know that's so recent. I'm like a liturgy baby. I realize that. But liturgy was able to inspire my soul in a completely new way. And I discovered that it was this whole other art form and for me, medium for creative expression. And I discovered that I could apply myself creatively again to spiritual work and that that somehow gave me energy. It was poetry, but it was prayer. And it was liturgy, but it was literature. And there were all the marks of a good story as part of good liturgy, and all the marks of beautiful poetry as part of beautiful liturgy. There was tension, and there was conflict, there was denouement and resolution, there was this background of the overarching narratives of humanity and of Christ's good work. There were different genres of of liturgy, and that was all held within this one ancient art form. 
And so I was very fascinated by reading liturgy and utilizing it, but I was even more fascinated to try my hand at creating it. And even though I don't think you have to love literature to love liturgy, I think it really helped me in my early journey. And now, so much of what I do in my life in any given day, from writing songs and sermons to writing liturgy and litanies, involves beautiful words. I eventually, miraculously, found myself back home to where I started, even though these days I do it on a shoestring and I love and who the heck knows how long it'll last. But while I don't regularly say that I'm a poet, I do regularly say that I'm a liturgist, which I think has some similarities. So a lot of what I do every week as a liturgist is read and soak in biblical scripture every week so that I can offer a liturgical contribution to go along with that scripture. And each week, it is my practice to follow along with the Revised Common Lectionary, which is our shared schedule of readings um, that take us through the major narratives of the Bible over the course of a three-year period. I've done this practice for going on three years, so I've almost been through the entire lectionary in this, in this way. So basically what I do is a version of what we just did a while ago is like an informal Lectio Divina or a sacred reading of the assigned passages for the week. And then I sit with it, and I see what creativity and what prayer that might stir up in me. And you guys, I got to tell you, it's been a transformative three years. So much so that I kind of can't tell you. I can't really tell you what this has done for me. It goes beyond words. When you stick with the discipline like that uh, for, for that long of a time, what it does to you, you can't really say. You can't really share. So um, for nearly three years, I've had this weekly date with the scriptures, sitting with them, sitting with God among the scriptures, and waiting on the muse of the scripture to speak to me. I have at times wrestled. I have at times been impatient. Um, sometimes I've been unwilling or too tired. A couple of times, the lectionary made me so mad that I had to get up and walk away. And I just I had to blow it off for the day. But I've been humbled. I've been humbled by that. And I learned, I realized that I've learned a new posture for receiving. One that is very similar to the, to the posture that you need when you approach poetry. Learning to have the posture of the poet and to read and absorb poetry can help us become more attuned to the voice of God, which speak to us in a myriad of ways. And I personally find so much beauty and inspiration in the liturgy of the Bible. I love the fact that the Psalms are originally meant to be song lyrics. There's good reasons that there's a whole section of our sacred scripture that falls into the genre of poetry. These books are broadly Psalms, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, and Limitations, although there's poetry in plenty of other places in the Bible, too. 
these books are both prayer and song. They're both expression of the depths of human emotion and experience and the observation of the presence and the work of God. And the Psalms in particular are the ancient prayer book. People have devoted their lives to praying the Psalms, which, by the way, I think is a really excellent practice, and it's one that I highly recommend for spiritual people. I personally spent a couple of years listening to audio of the Psalms daily. I had a little yellow iPod, and I would sit at my cubicle job that I had, and I would just have them in my ear as I was working my cubicle job. And they'd be like playing in the background of my consciousness. And I think that doing that, even though I wasn't really, I wasn't thinking about the Psalms that I was hearing. I wasn't engaging with them intellectually. But I still think that they really formed me for the work that I do today as a writer and as a litanist slash liturgist and as a spiritual seeker and a mystic. I think that psalmic language and that expression has burrowed its way down into my DNA. Someone said, poetry is more evocative than ex explicative. And what that means is how you interpret it depends largely upon you. What a particular set of words evokes in your psyche is going to be unique to you. So... <clears throat> The Song of Songs is an entire book of the Bible that's a poem. And it's about love. And there's a lot of debate about how to interpret that book. Like, is it ancient erotica? Is it allegory about the relationship between Christ and the church, as, which is what my evangelical upbringing taught me? Or is it simply a poetic celebration of love? No one can answer definitively. Everybody's got an opinion. And Ecclesiastes, have you ever read Ecclesiastes? Man, what a downer of a book. Whoever wrote that book, and no one's clear on who that was, was a bona fide pessimist. Like, why is, why is it even in the Bible at all? Could it be could it be that the human soul needs a poetic outlet to express its melancholy? Huh. Could it be that the ability to sit with our disappointment and our melancholy might be of use to us as spiritual people? What is it that Ecclesiastes helps us to see and get in touch with as human beings? And then... There's Lamentations. Now, there's another melancholy book. It's basically a funeral dirge for a city. It's a quick four chapters. You can read them real quick if you're ever in a really good mood and don't want to be anymore. <laughs> it's four chapters in which the author ex almost exclusively just whines about all the mean stuff that God has done. Now, I'm teasing a little bit because I understand that lament is very different than whining or complaining. But what do we learn about the fact that there's an entire four-chapter book of the Bible that is just lament? Could it be that the poetry of lament teaches us a useful skill? Could it be that authentic lament somehow moves us forward as we face our trauma and our problems and our complicities? 
I heard recently the public theologian Mark Charles say in a podcast that in his view, in the American church, lament is the only way forward. If you haven't listened to Mark Charles talk about the doctrine, the doctrine of discovery and how it relates to white supremacy today, do yourself a favor and get to Googling because he has some important facts to set us straight on. And his view is that an, a period of extended lament is necessary for our spiritual survival in this country and in these times. And somehow, the poetry of lament in the scriptures is already teaching us that lesson and demonstrating that skill. Many of us just haven't been awake enough to hear it yet. I thank God for prophets like Reverend Charles who are encouraging us to pay attention in a new way. So, not only are these scriptural poetries teaching us useful skills for being in the world, like prayer, authenticity, and lament, they're also doing what all good poetry does, which is that poetry helps us to see. The great poets are first of all seers. They often observe and comment on their subjects, inviting the reader to notice, feel, see, or hear something new. Often, we are invited into a fresh perspective. And this is why I think poetry is so helpful to spiritual people, or people who are trying to live a spiritual life. Because an inescapable part of any spiritual journey is learning to see anew and transforming our perceptions. So we already heard that psalm three times in our Lectio, and I particularly like the last line of it. It says, oh, that today you would listen to the voice of the divine. Oh, that we as spiritual people would use every tool available to us to become more aware and awake to the voice of God. The Psalms are not the only scriptures that are talking about this. Here's just a random few others that are talking about us getting a new perspective and way of seeing. So here's Romans 12 too. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In Acts 9 it says, The scales fell from Saul's eyes as he received his spiritual awakening and his transformation. And he even gets a new name. In Ephesians 1, Paul, who used to be Saul, prays, I ask that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know the hope of his calling, the, rich of his, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and the surpassing greatness of his power to us who believe. He asks that the eyes of their hearts get enlightened that they can have a new ability to see and understand. In 2 Corinthians, if anyone's in Christ, he or she is a new creature. Old things have passed away, and all, behold, all things have, come, have become new. And Jesus is always asking us to, um, to pay attention. He's always speaking in his teachings as though there's something there that his audience is just not aware of yet. In today's passage that Aaron read earlier, Christ says, how long, how much longer must I be with you and bear with you, he says. How, must, how, how long must I be patient with your utter blindness and asleepness, he says to us. 
I hear frustration in his words, but I also hear lament and compassion there. The passage says that the disciples were weighed down with sleep. But since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory. Since they'd stayed awake, which is hard. It's hard to stay awake. When we read the words of Jesus, we can get a sense of this other reality that he lives inside. He calls it the kingdom of God in many translations, and it's this alternate universe that he seems at times desperate to get us to perceive. Like, just look, folks. Just open your eyes. It's right here. In Matthew 4, which is another place, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And the message is like, stop with all this other fluff that is eating away at your attention. Turn away from it all and pay attention to the kingdom that's unfolding right before your very eyes. You're concerned with silly stuff, guys, while heaven's opening up. And I'm here with you, says Christ. So pay attention and wake up. At least that's how I interpret it. And I hear Jesus' earnestness in asking us to pay attention and to hone our skills in observing and becoming aware of heaven on earth and of the glory before us. And the words of Jesus help wake us up to that glory before us. But also, we have this, unique human in, this uniquely human invention of expression, which is poetry, which is, as I've said, does what any good art does, which is helps us to see something new and become new because our consciousness is therefore expanded and awakened and different. And it's this particular art form, and it, it's of language and sound and spoken word and vocalization and vibration. And we're talking about it at church because we believe that it can help expand our awareness of heaven on earth, which is the thing that Jesus is always trying to get us to do. We believe that it can help us become aware of the moves that God is making right here among us now in our community and in our town and in our relationships and beyond. As E.E. E. Cummings said, now the ears of my ears awake and now the eyes of my eyes are opened. But how do we even wake up to an alternative reality that Jesus wants us to wake up to? I'm a real big fan of starting by asking. I know that's what that seems a little bit oversimplified, but it's really what I do. Um, I find Jesus in general to be really kind and helpful, and I usually just ask for whatever I need help with. So for me, this conversation with Jesus might sound like this. Okay, Jesus, <clears throat> every time you open your mouth in Scripture, it seems like you're trying to get folks to wake up some to something that we're asleep to, which is like an alternate reality. We sometimes have trouble perceiving. So if it's so important, Jesus, will you help me wake up to it? And you can say that. This is the kind of thing that usually works for me, typically. I'm just throwing it out there. But I've also been reading this cool book, um, this cool book called How God Changes Your Brain. I'm not that far into it yet, but 
in it, these neuroscientists are proving how spirituality and spiritual practice actually change the human brain. Like they're doing brain scans and they're seeing physical changes in the structures that are inside the human brain. And um, people who do some form of meditation or centering prayer for 12 to 15 minutes a day have measurably calmer, more optimistic, more compassionate brains and are more open-minded and able to take in the world. And incidentally, those people also age better and their, their blood pressure is lower than their peers. And these benefits can be yours for the low, low price of 12 to 15 minutes a day of just devoting yourself to paying attention to the divine every day. So if you want to wake up to the kingdom of God, my, my advice is try asking and then try prayer. Because I'm supposed to be talking about poetry, right? But somehow I got off on prayer. How could that have happened? But remember that Aurelia pointed out to us in the last week that she spoke that there is this immense overlap between poetry and prayer. The poetic posture mimics and supports the prayer posture because similar skills are needed to attend to both. And the rhythm of poetry reflects the rhythm of the devoted faith life. So if you missed that sermon, go back and listen to it. I think you'll find it helpful. Now, you might say, well, the obvious difference is that prayer is typically directed towards the divine. And poetry can be about anything. And, well, you'd be right. But just... Turn your feeler back up a little bit and listen to this snippet from a poem by Mary Oliver, which is, this is arguably her most famous poem and most well-known poem. It's called The Summer Day. This is a snippet from it. It's not the whole thing. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? I think there's good reason that so many people love this Mary Oliver poem. Mary seems to think that a good thing to do with your life is to devote yourself to paying attention to stuff. Yeah. The poet Jean Valentine says, there's a likeness between poetry and prayer that is not so much thanks to our, thank, sorry, that's not so much thanks or supplication, but the more unconscious activity of meditation or dreaming. The likeness lies in poetry and, medita and meditative prayer and dreaming, all being, potentially anyhow, healing, and all being out of our hands. And I think I agree with Jean Valentine about that, that there's something similar between poetry and prayer that's somehow about releasing control and allowing ourselves to receive healing. And I realize that's kind of a feely thing to say, and that's why I asked you to turn your feeler up before you heard it. But it's the thing about poetry. You can't prove anything about it. 
You can't prove anything about prayer either. You can't, you can hardly even describe prayer. We can talk circles about around prayer and we won't be any better at it for doing all the talking about it. You can only experience it or not. You can receive it. And poetry is the same. And man, you know, is that a moment? Have you ever had a moment where you read some poetry that, mo that exactly expresses the thing you know in your bones? If that happens to you, it's like the world just opens up and your reason for being is validated. So, yes, poetry can be about anything, but knowing how to experience poetry is a skill that can also be applied to prayer. See, the link between poetry and prayer lies in the skill set needed to interact with them. Okay, listen. To interact with a poem, you need to be a little bit open-minded and non-judgmental. You need to lay down your expectations. You need to let go of your control issues. You need to sit quietly and absorb. You need to listen to the cadence and the alliteration and to pay attention to the nuances of the words and their placement on the page. You need to set aside your tendency to decide immediately whether you agree or disagree. You need to go out to Rumi's field. You remember it? The Sufi poet Rumi says, out Beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. And in the same way, to interact with the divine, which is one way of describing what prayer is, you don't have to do anything, but it helps if you can let your soul lie down for a moment. We can only ever talk around the divine, just like we can talk about the moon. But the words about the moon are not the moon. You've heard that metaphor, yes? We can point at the divine, but we can never fully capture the divine with words because it's too full to talk about. And that's the kind of mystery that interacting with poetry helps us understand. So last week I went to the library and I checked out a big armload of books of poetry. Just a big smattering of everything they had on the shelf. I tried to grab diverse poetic voices and I spent some time just reading poems. And here's the thing. If you read enough poems, you start to understand that there are so many ways to interpret a poem. What a great poem means to one person will not be what it means to another. One person's big takeaway will not be the same as the, ne the next person's. The poem is unique to every individual. And guess what, my friends? The same thing is true for interacting with God. The way you perceive God will not be the same as how I perceive God. Our lived experiences differ, and so do our perspectives. There's no one right way to interact with or think about God. Now, there are some wrong ways. 
I, I do believe that some of the wrong ways were exemplified last week in the UMC vote to ban gay clergy. I think that was a wrong way of interpreting God. But that's just an example. There's no right way, no one right way. Because God is like a poem. God is like a million poems. God is uncapturable by a million poems and also captured by the poetry of your very breath, by the poetry of wind in treetops, the poetry of baby babble, the poetry of pet sidekicks, the poetry of suffering and lament, the poetry of bread and wine, and so on and on. And it's up to us to pay attention to that poetry. And when we pay attention to the actual poetry of words written by human beings on a page, it strengthens the muscles like a drill or an exercise that we can use to pay attention to the divine. And if we practice it, we might get this truth internalized that God is way bigger than what we thought and what small religion taught us that God is and that God is a unique and mysterious being who has a unique ability to be something different for each person who beholds God. And that beholding God and paying attention to God requires some ability to hold nuance and tension and some patience and some observation skills. Wow, that's big. I, I often think of it this way. We can't look directly at the sun, but we can learn about the sun by looking at the things the sun is shining on. Does that make sense to you? In the same way, you and I might know each other better by an hour spent next to one another in the car than we would if we had a face-to-face -face staring contest. Sometimes it's just more productive to come at God sideways like one comes at a poem, not expecting the poem to explain itself, not expecting the poem to be the same for everyone, and when we can understand this about the divine, we can leave behind all sorts of judgments and barriers that once kept us distant. And one happy side effect of having a bigger and more robust concept of God is that when we stop judging God, we usually stop judging people too. So Jesus is saying, wake up. The kingdom of God is right here, and I'm offering you a toolbox full of tools that you can use to free yourselves from your pain and your suffering and your bondage to evil. And the scriptures contain this key that we can use to unlock things, poetry, lament, authentic expression, yes. But also the mystery of how to begin interacting with the divine, the sacred pause the holy silence, the allowing, the attending to, the paying attention. And so for all these reasons that I've shared, in a lot of words, but hopefully a lot of feelings too, I'm very thankful for the gift of poetry in my life, for poetry and prayer and the ways that those teach me to pay attention to God. And I'd like to leave you with this one last poem from a poet named... John R. Snyder.
He passed away a couple years ago here in Austin. Here it is. Quick, free yourself. That wasn't a poem I just gave you. It was a diamond-tipped hacksaw for the bars of your heart. Hurry. Right now, I am distracting the guards with a little verbal juggling and poetic sword swallowing. Any minute, they may catch on and return with a vengeance. Go. Make a break for it. Rumi still waits in that field of his. I've been there. We can find the way. So may you all, my beloveds, beloved people of peace, may you learn to use all the tools available to free yourselves. May you use the poem and the prayer, the discipline and the pause. And may the divine be so free inside you that you go places you've never been and think thoughts you've never thought and do things that you couldn't have imagined otherwise. May your powers of paying attention take you farther than you ever thought possible. And may Christ's alternate reality, the community of heaven, be so real to you that it becomes your main reality. Amen.